our series in the book of Romans, and I, I kind of miss Romans already. I feel like I've lost a friend. Romans has been so kind to us, and I've enjoyed it so much. I hope you of the church has enjoyed it as well. And then in about five or six weeks, we're going to be starting a series on the book of Nehemiah. And we're taking the next five weeks to go through some of the, the basics of what we as a church are all about and this morning, really, we're going to hear about what's so special about the church. And the reason we wanted to do that is it's so easy, it's so easy to take what we do for granted. It's so easy to just kind of do church. It's so easy to just kind of go through the motions. It's so easy to just do routines and go through life and forget what life's all about and forget what's important. And we need regular reminders. And we thought it would be a good time at the outset of the new year to get fresh reminders of what we're all about, what our passion is all about as a local church and what our focus is about as a local church. And then so the next five weeks, and then we're going to head into the book of Nehemiah. You know, this, when I was growing up, I, I really never wanted to be a pastor. I know that that sounds odd for your pastor to tell you that. I never wanted to be a pastor. I had no desire to be a pastor. I had all kinds of other ambitions, but being a pastor in a local church wasn't one of them. And it, I didn't just fall into it accidentally. Don't worry. It's not the last thing I could do. And that's, that's not why I'm here. But you see, I always had a high view of the church growing up. I always understood that the church was essential and that the church made a big difference because the first place where I heard the good news about Jesus was in a local church. The first place where I learned what it looks like to serve and be served was in a local church. The, where I, I learned what loving Christian relationships look like was in the context of a local church. So I always had a value for the local church. I didn't just discover that value when I became a pastor. I was talking to another pastor the day and he says, you know, I was trying to explain to my people that, that I didn't have a passion for the church after being a pastor. It's because I had a passion for a church that I became a pastor. I thought that was kind of true for me as well, but I was a little slower than that guy. And I was talking about Will Broadus. He was a, a, a church planning pastor across town. Yeah, I was a little slower. I had a passion for the church, a desire to see the church flourish and grow. I love being a part of things. I love serving. But it wasn't until a couple guys, a guy named Dave Henders and, and Chris Ludic, they took an interest in me personally that I really began to grow. Anybody here ever have somebody in the church take an interest in you and you've grown through that relationship? Anybody at all? Raise your hand. Excellent. Anybody here ever actually helped someone else grow and you've seen them grow through your influence and your input in their lives? You can raise your hand. It's not, it's not a bragging thing. That's actually bragging on God, so don't worry about that. But it wasn't until those men began to invest in my life that I began to see fruit being born. And then I began to exercise the gifts that God had given to me and I began to step out in different ways and to serve and to see God at work. But I was still a little slow. They, they asked me, hey, Matt, would you consider going to this little thing called the Pastor's College? Would you consider being a pastor? And at first I thought, nah, no, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm making enough money. I'm, I'm really comfortable. I'm, I'm really all good. But, you know, what helped was there was another guy in the local church. And I think I've shared this story before. But there's a guy in the local church with me who I really didn't like very much. And that's okay to admit. We're not going to instantly like everybody else in the local church, okay? I didn't really like him. That was to my shame. I needed to grow. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. He wasn't like me. 
He didn't look like me. He didn't act like me. He didn't talk like me. He didn't come from the same place. Actually, he came from Greenville, I found out just a few years ago. But um, I was living in Virginia at the time. He, he didn't even smell like me. He had cologne that just really bothered me. I know that sounds simple. That sounds really petty, okay? But we notice all these little differences and things about people can bother us. But it was this guy who God used to speak into my life to bring conviction and to, and to encourage me that I was being self-centered and self-focused and to bring some other things to me. And God really pierced my heart. And he used this man who I was in a local fellowship with and in relationship with because I was in close relationship with a person I didn't like. Okay, I'm going to get a little real because I think all of us at times are in close relationships and people in the church. We may not really naturally like them. Now, the good news is my heart has changed and I I love this guy. I, I like him a lot, even though we are totally different. We will never have the same likes. I think he still likes jazz from the Rippingtons, you know, um, things that's just not me. I still like classic rock. We're not, we're not compatible in a lot of ways, but, but God used him to speak into my life to bring conviction. And really, ultimately, God used him to help me see just how valuable the local church is, just how precious it is to, to God, to the world, to me. And so today we're going to look at a bunch of different scriptures about what's so special about the church. Because I think all of us need to catch a fresh, fresh vision for what is special about the local church and about this local church as well. And so I want to begin by looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, we're going to look at 3 to 10. I'm not going to look at every part of this passage. I just want to draw your attention to a couple pieces. And I'm going to be jumping around through a bunch of different scriptures. Normally we preach through one passage in an expository manner in the church, in case you are new to the church. But today we're going to do something and for the next few weeks that's a little more topically oriented, but it's still from scripture. So let's read God's word together in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which with, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I'm going to pause for a second because really the key verses where all of this is transpiring, we're going to see in verse 9 and 10. Let's go back to the scripture. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich and glorious blessings that we have. Thank you for blessing us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you for choosing us in you before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. Thank you, God, for predestining us to adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will. Thank you for redeeming us through your blood. 
Thank you, God, for giving us the forgiveness of our trespasses. God, thank you for your rich grace that you lavish upon us with all wisdom. God, thank you for making known your mysteries according to your purpose in Christ Jesus. God, we're grateful, and I pray, Lord, this morning that we would see just where it is that you do all of these things, Lord, and that we would have greater affection for you and for what you're doing in and through us as a local body. God, I pray that we might see the glory of this humble institution that you have created in you. God, I pray that we might revel and enjoy and relish and encourage each other as we together build each other up in the church. God, I pray that you would bless me as I speak. Give me grace. Give grace to all who hear. Enable each and every person here to hear from you, God. Let this not be dull words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, looking back now, I I can see how priceless the church really was to me growing up and how priceless the church is, but but sometimes I think we're prone to see all the things that are wrong with the church. If you are honest, you're probably aware of at least a couple things that you don't prefer even about this church. There's probably things you don't prefer about me or maybe the way I smell or whatever it might be. There's, there's things you don't prefer about the local church and probably things you don't prefer about this local church or things that are, you don't enjoy or don't appreciate. And, and sometimes I think those things can cloud our vision and instead we can fail to see just how valuable the church really is, even the flawed local church that we are. You know, no, nobody thinks that our church is perfect, but that's actually part of the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that God uses this imperfect group of people to bring about his purposes on the earth. Sometimes we miss the beauty inside of the church. Instead, we see all the flaws and imperfections and all the warts. And we don't see just how priceless the church really is. But that's the first thing I want us to see is that the church is priceless. The church is priceless. Last year, I think it was around May sometime, I read a story about a guy, an Australian man named Terry. I am sorry to Steve Cliff, by the way, for talking about Australians. Our, our intern is from New Zealand. They have, this, they have this rivalry here. But there's a man named Terry, and he made his girlfriend, Anna, a wooden pendant for her on, her one, on their one-year dating anniversary. And it was, it was about two inches wide and about an inch thick and about two inches long. And it was a little bit ungainly. It was a, I, I was going to put a picture up for you, but I couldn't find anything that was really good for you this morning. But it was this really large wooden pendant. And I can only think my wife would think, what in the world did you just put this big rock on my chest for her. and it's this big wooden pendant he carved hand carved it for her and he gave it to her and it was a little unsightly it wasn't exactly great craftsmanship it wasn't exactly beautiful but she wore it every day and she thought it was really special because he handmade this thing and he gave it to her and it was kind of her style so she wore it everywhere she went she almost never took it off she saw it as a symbol of his love for her and at one point, he thought she was going to trade it for a piece that she saw that they went to this kind of this art, artist festival, kind of like Artist Fear, but something different. And there was a blacksmith there, and he was making a, a piece of jewelry. And she thought, ooh, I really love that. And he said, I really love your necklace. Want to trade? And for a second, she was on the verge of trading this necklace. But she thought, ooh, her boyfriend was right there. He just made the thing, so she said no. But he could tell that she, she kind of wanted to get rid of it, but she kept wearing it. 
And then about a year and a half later, they went to a cave called Smoo Cave, which, which actually means it's, a, it's an old Norse word for hiding place. They went to Smoo Cave, and he says, hey, can I borrow your necklace from you? And so he gets the necklace from her and, and takes it off, and, and he takes it over to a rock, and, and she's wondering what he's doing. He takes his knife out, and he starts to dig in the side of the necklace, and he pops open the necklace. And so she's a little confused, and he goes, here, I've got it back for you. And he, he popped it back together, did something really quickly, and she couldn't figure out what he did. She he handed her the necklace, and then he gets down on one knee, and he proposed to her. What he had done is, inside of this kind of not very attractive necklace that he made, he had hidden the engagement ring a year and a half earlier. And she'd been wearing it on this, this kind of not attractive pendant on a rope necklace for a year and a half. She'd been carrying around a diamond engagement ring the whole time. It's a true story. You can go and look in the news. And he, she'd been carrying around for a year and a half wearing this thing, not knowing that it was a value. And, and I love her response. She says, she stood there with this completely confused and dumbfounded look on her face. When she finally worked out what had happened, she yelled, yes, and pounced on me. And then it actually took her a couple moments to understand, this is what he says, that the ring had been in the necklace the entire time since I gave it to her. She flipped out. Wait, it's been in there the whole time? I could have lost it. And then she called him a name. (laughs) Which was a hilarious mixture of happy and angry. She hadn't understood the priceless value of the pendant when she got it. But once she did, she loved it even more. This thing she was carrying around, it contained something of great value to her. And she just didn't know how special it really was to her until it was opened up and she saw what was inside of it. The church is a little like that, right? God gave, gave us the gift of the church. He instituted the church. Jesus says he'll build his church. We'll get to that in a moment. He gives us this gift of this church. But sometimes it comes packaged in something that's not exactly attractive, You know, it's kind of quaint, but it has some humble look to it. It doesn't look impressive necessarily. Unless you understand what's inside is priceless. What's inside this local church, what's inside every local church that God has established is priceless. It comes in a package that's a little rough. It might be handmade. It might might be a little awkward. You might think about trading it up from time to time. But it's a something that's got the greatest value inside. It comes in a package that we don't expect to contain something very valuable. Because you know why? It comes in the form of other people. Look around just for a second. I want you to just look around just for a second. See that everybody here is different than you. You don't have to, well, don't worry if you're visiting. I'm not going to ask you to shake hands or do that weird thing that makes everybody uncomfortable. And all the introverts are like, oh gosh, I'm never coming back again. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to make you shake hands or say hello to anybody. I just want you to look around, and that's, I know that's awkward enough for introverts, but you can do that and see how different we are. Not, not everybody here is like you, and actually hardly anybody here is like anybody else. The church comes in a package that's, dare I say, a little homely sometimes, a little awkward, a little ungainly, a little weird. People are challenging. There's things that can be done better. It doesn't look that impressive. It looks pretty ordinary most of the time. But inside the church is a mystery of great value. The, the verse we read a moment ago in Ephesians, it's all about the, the riches of his glorious grace. 
and how Jesus has lavished on us all of the riches of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. God has lavished all these things on us and he's given us all these wonderful benefits and then he says that he does all this in Jesus and he does this in the fullness of the plan. It says, look in, look in verse 9 and 10, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and, and things on earth. And, and you're going you're to wait for a second. You think, well, how does he do that? How does he bring us all these glorious riches? How does he make known this inheritance? How does he unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth? Because he does that somewhere. He does that in a specific way. What is God's plan? How does he do these things in Jesus Christ? How does he unite all these things together? How does he reveal his riches? How does he reveal his grace? How does he display his glory? Now I want you to skip down to verse 22 and verse 23. Still talking about the same subject. Paul is still the same vein of thought here. Talking about the fullness of time. How God is uniting all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And then it says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. And he explains how all things united in verse 22. He says, and gave him his head over all things. So you're getting that? Paul's talking about all things united in him in verse 10. And all things again in verse 22. But he says he's head over all things to the church. To the church. And then he says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in verse 9, it says that Christ is a plan for the fullness of time. Paul's hitting that again. And now in the fullness of time, he's revealed that through his body, which is the fullness of him in verse 23, who fills all in all. Think about that for a moment. The church is the place where God makes known his glorious mysteries. The church is the place where, where God makes known forgiveness and repentance and he makes known all the riches of his grace. The church is the place though where in the body of Christ he manifests all the fullness of him who fills all in all. Think about the value of that. Think about how priceless it is that the church body is the fullness of Jesus. You ever think about that? That this local church body is, in a way, in a small way, demonstrating the fullness of Jesus. He says, who fills all in all. We're starting to crack open that, that pendant to see, wait a minute. This thing that looks a little homely here, this, this pendant is full of priceless value. The church is priceless his plan was to unite all things in him and put all things under him and to do that in and through the church. The church is the way that God unites all things together. That he submits all things to Jesus in and through the church. To the church. And he's the, it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that's pretty staggering. I don't know about you, but when I think about the local church, I, I don't often think of the church is the fullness of Jesus. But I want you to think of the church that way. Because God wants you to think of the church that way. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is more glorious and more valuable than we could ever know. Not only, not only is the church 
priceless because it's the fullness of him. But it's also priceless because God refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Look in Ephesians 5.25. We all know this passage and it's, it's often read at wedding ceremonies and it's about husbands and wives. But I want you to read it for something else. I want you to read it for what it says about Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Did you catch that? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is priceless because the Son of God, the very co-eternal God, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, he says he gave himself up for what? For the church, for his bride, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, look in verse 27, he might present what? Individuals? No. Although each individuals are a part of the church, he says, so he might present the church. Thank you. I heard one person whisper. You can say it out loud. That's okay. So he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What's it telling us here? Like a husband gives himself up for his bride, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself up for the church that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He's giving his all. He's given his all. And he gives his all that we might be presented in splendor. The church is valuable because it's the fullness of God, but the church is valuable because it's the bride of Christ. Because Christ came to give himself up for the church. Let me ask you, what is of more value than what Jesus holds most valuable? You don't read in the Bible of Jesus giving himself up for government. You don't hear of Jesus giving himself up for any earthly institutions besides the church. You don't hear of Jesus giving himself up to a cause. Although all causes really can be subservient and be carried out in the name of love, what you see Jesus giving himself up to is and for is the church. Jesus lived and he died for the church. What are you living and dying for? If you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then are you really following him and what he is most passionate about? What he lived for, what he gave himself up for, what he's died for, what he's devoted himself to? Look down at verse 29 of Ephesians 5. Not only has Jesus given himself up for the church, but it says in verse 29, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Jesus sees the church as valuable, so valuable that he gives himself up for it, that he's given his life for it, that he's working to present us spotless in his sight and that he nourishes and cherishes the church. There is nothing else in the Bible you see that Jesus does that with except his own body. He nourishes and cherishes the church. It's valuable because it's the fullness of Christ. It's the bride of Christ because Jesus nourishes and cherishes because Jesus died to purchase the church. Do you see the church as valuable? Do you see just how priceless of a gem the church is in the midst of this homely package? 
It's not only valuable because of that, it's valuable because Jesus promises to build his church. Jesus not only came for his church, he not only gave himself for his church, he's working for his church. You see all these things about what Jesus is doing in and through the church, but it also says that he will build his church. There was a confession in Matthew 16. Jesus asked his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? In verse 14, it says, they answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And now look at verse 18. It says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... You are Peter, and on this rock, what is he talking about? What rock is he talking about? You're Peter, you're a rock, but on this rock, he says what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the church. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed his disciples not to tell anybody he was the Christ. The first revelation really where his disciples see who Jesus is. They get a picture that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What is the first thing that Jesus tells them? He says, on that foundation, Peter, you're a rock. You're a little rock, but on, on this rock, on the rock of your confession, I will build my entire church. The church is precious because it's the foundation that Christ builds on. It's, it's, it's The foundation of the gospel is what Christ builds the church on. It's priceless and it should be precious to us because it's the fullness of Christ, because it's Christ's bride, because Jesus gave himself up for the church, because he died for the church, and because he promises to build the church. How do you view the church? Is it precious to you? Do you see that you're a part of something that's priceless? Yeah, we're... We may not be your favorite. We might look a little weird. We might be a little homegrown. But do you value the church and how can you tell? Do you you value the church with your time? Do you value the church with your talents, with your money? Do you follow Jesus in valuing the church like that? How would God have you respond in valuing your church? Second thing I want to show our attention to is to show what's so special about the church is that not only is the church priceless because it's priceless to Jesus, the church is special because the church is God's very own people. The church is God's very own people. The church, I love, there's a quote from a guy named Tim Savage. He says, it's the most strategic body of people on the face of the planet. He's not overstating that, okay? Your Your business is not the most strategic body of people on the face of the planet. The church is the most strategic body of people on the face of the planet. He says, through its ministries, vast tracts of humanity are rescued from evil and lifted from despair. And by its voice, new life is proclaimed to entire civilizations. It's an association of people, listen, it says, that pulsates with the glory of God. Do you see that? Do you see that God has rescued each and every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ here and that they are pulsating with the glory of God? He goes on to say, what human gathering could possibly warrant such accolades? 
only one qualifies, the church of Jesus Christ. The church pulsates with the glory of God because really God has made his glory known in individual people like you and me. But not, not any one of us actually demonstrates the glory of God completely. We need each other to see God's glory in different ways. We need each other to see God's image reflected in different ways. As a people, we demonstrate the glory of God. The church is a body of Christ. It's a people of God. Now, we've all heard about the analogy of the church being the body of Christ, but I want you to really think about that for a second. The church is not an employee of God. That would be a little different, right? And that would be fine if God says, the church is my vehicle, it's my tool, it's an employee. All of you are employees, right? That would be okay. That would still be merciful of God if he said we're employees, but he doesn't call us employees. He, He actually doesn't even say that we're just servants or slaves, although we are servants or slaves of God. You're not only slaves. It's the difference between an employee and family. We read earlier how God has adopted us and he's made us his children. If you are a part of the church, you've been brought into a family. You've been adopted into a family and we've all been adopted. And by the way, we all come from different homes, from broken homes, from different cultures, different backgrounds. And if you can think about an orphanage full of kids who come from all kinds of different homes, it probably would be a little messy and there'd probably be some clashes. That's the church. We're a messy orphanage. We're God's family, though. I I love in the book of Acts, he's preaching in Acts 13, 26, and he says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. Sons of the family of Abraham. And by the way, the sons and daughters. We're sons, we're adopted sons and daughters in this messy institution, this messy orphanage. But God makes his dwelling place with us. Look then at Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. You're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is the church? The church is where God makes his spirit known. Where he, he builds us up together on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. But we are a structure that is joined together. Have you ever seen a house made of one brick. I doubt it. I mean, unless it's a massive brick and you carved it out, I know you can go there. I mean, those of you who are really specific in your head, you're probably thinking that, well, you know, I've seen a a cliff and they carved it out. Yeah, but that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about building a temple and the picture there is of different stones being built together and all of those stones being laid on a cornerstone. But it's not possible to be part of a temple if you're out as a stone sitting in the field all alone. Or a stone sitting at home watching a podcast or listening, I'm sorry, listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video online. don't, Don't make the mistake of thinking that that means you're part of the church because you hear the Bible and you hear people preach and so that means you're part of a local body. 
To be built together means that you are built together, together. A household of God. It speaks to the closeness and that God dwells with us, that the church is meant to be built together, that we're a dwelling place for God. It's a picture of togetherness. It's a picture of, of closeness. It's a picture of, of family, of a building. You see, there's so many metaphors that have to do with closeness and togetherness that you can't escape it and don't think you can do life alone as a Christian. You can't. Now, I, I know for those, again, who are nitpicky, you can say, well, I guess if somebody's in prison, they can do life alone. And what they're, sure, God will give grace to them, but we were never meant to be built like that. We were meant to be part of a family, a household, a temple, built together. And as that happens, God dwells there by his spirit. But it's, but it's even better. He doesn't just treat us like family. And family is close. I'm close to my family. I am, I am closer to Julie and to my kids than anyone else on the planet. I am, and I'm not ashamed about that. I love them. They're wonderful. I, I would do anything for them. I am close to them. There is a closeness that we have that is not comparable to anyone else. And that's the way it should be. That's how we're brought into God's family and we're brought in with one another. We are close. But he makes another analogy for us that shows why the church is so special. It's not just a household. It's not just a family or building or temple, all these closeness metaphors. It's a body. Let me ask you, who is closer to you than your own body? Even your family is not as close to you as you are to yourself. Your hand is pretty close to you. It's connected. It's a connectedness. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interweaving. It's it's part of you. And here's something amazing. What's so special about the church is it says that we are the body of Christ. That God is so united with us. He doesn't just bring us close and make us a family and build together with us and let us build on him as the cornerstone. No, it says he brings us in so close that scripture says that we are part of his body. To be a part of a body is an amazing analogy. There is nothing closer to you than yourself, than your own body. And he says that we are the body of Christ. He has brought us into such a close relationship with him and with each other that he's made us a body. And that's got lots of implications. The implication is that we receive everything from him and then we also share him with each other. You know, blood flows all throughout our bodies. And if I was to cut off my hand, the blood would leave my body. It wouldn't be beneficial to the rest of the body either. We, we share the life of the church is where we share the lifeblood of Jesus. It's where we share the benefits that he's given to us with other people. It's like us sharing blood with the rest of the body. It's when we share what God has done in our lives with each other in a close, personal way. It is how we give life to each other. It's where we receive from each other and where we give to each other. There is a closeness that's implied that can't be had apart from a local manifestation, a local body of the church. And it's special because of that. It's not detached. It's attached. It's involved. There's closeness. The body, different parts of the body help other parts of the body out. 
The feet help the rest of the body walk around. The hands help the body do things. The eyes help the body see us and bump into stuff. The ears help the body hear so they can hear the oncoming car when they're walking across traffic. Every part of the body plays a unique role and, and we need each other. There's an interconnectedness that is necessary that only comes in a manifested local church body. You can say, I'm part of the church universal and yes, you are. But if you're part of the church universal and you're not actually benefiting from the church specific, you're not really actively a part of the body. I don't mean theologically, yes, he's made you a part of the church if you've professed faith in Jesus Christ, but you are not actively involved in benefiting from the body if you're not actively involved in benefiting from a local church. Church is special because it's a family, it's a temple, it's a body. There's a vivid picture in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to skip Ephesians 1.22 for the slides. You can go to 1 Corinthians 10.16. This is a wonderful picture of what happens in communion as the church is gathered and sharing together in a corporate communion. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's a sharing in the blood of Christ together. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We, we share his body as food. We share his blood as life. He said, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread, Jesus Christ. And, and that transpires in the context of a local church gathered, where a local church is participating together, remembering the Lord through, through the Lord's Supper. The church is special because it's a temple, because it's a family, because it's a body. And because it's a body, we need each other. We need each other. You need the local church, whether you feel like it or not. You know, if my hands are typing really fast and they're getting a lot of writing done and all those things are transpiring, they might get the notion that they don't need the rest of the body, but without the brain to direct them and the rest of the body to support them, there's no way the hands could be effective. We need each other. We're messy though, aren't we? You know, sometimes the body gets a little dirty. Sometimes we need to be clean. Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we get hurt. It says when one member of the body hurts, all members of the body hurt. You ever break a toe? Man, that hurts. You know, this little insignificant thing on our foot that we think is not a big deal. Doug can understand that. He has a broken foot right now, but just hopefully it's going to get the pins taken out soon. But um, it's amazing how one little thing, the whole body just gets, is a problem. Why? Because we're so interconnected. We need each other. There's a problem. The body's meant to respond to that problem. We're meant to care for that part. We're not meant to cut the part off. When I, when I, when I, I broke, I don't know, I think six toes now. And not, not not at the same time, but I, I've broken six toes throughout the years, and and each time it's a reminder that oh that needs attention. I need you to be doing something different, maybe not being as dumb or maybe doing things smarter. But I need to care for that thing. Now the whole body needs to give attention to that, and the whole body is directed by the needs of this one part. That's actually supposed to be how we relate to each other in the church when somebody else is hurting. We need each other. We need to relate to each other that way. Whoa, wait a minute. There's a problem over here. Let's not say, okay, well, I'm going to distance myself from that. No, hey, well, hang on. Let's change how we do everything. We might need to like, put less weight on that, that member. We might need to wrap it up. We might need to put some balm on it. We might need to care for it, disinfect it, whatever. But let's help it out. 
It's messy sometimes. There's aches and pains. But we need each other. You know, just think about all the different analogies about a body, about a temple, about a family. You know, I, I think family is, is, a, is a great analogy for the church because, well, not only because God says it is, but because families are messy sometimes. And, and everybody's got the weird uncle, right? In, in your family. There's weird uncles all over the church. There's weird aunts too, by the way. I'm not just picking on the guys. There's, the, you know, the church is weird. It's messy, but it's a family, and we're meant to treat each other like a family that never breaks up because Jesus never breaks up with us. His, the head never leaves us. Let me ask you, when you look at a fellow church member, do you see them as God's people? Do you see them as his family? Do you see them as fellow members of the body? Do you see them as intricate? Do you see them as necessary? Do you see that you might need even people like that guy who spoke into my life that I didn't really care for, that you probably need them? Why? How do I know that? Because God puts you in a fellowship with them. That's part of the beauty of the church is that he puts a bunch of people who are not like each other together so that together each one of us can learn what does it really look like to image God, to look like God? Because not any one of us has the whole picture. And so even that guy who I didn't really prefer, I saw that, wait a minute, he had a piece of understanding about who God is and who God was and and who I needed to be that I needed from him. And that's true for everybody here who's not like you, who's different than you. I I love that we are a multi-generational family, that there are people from babies to 80s in the church. Now, I pray for people even older than that eventually, but... We have this wide range, and, and I love that most of our groups, most of our small groups are like that. They're very different. Don't go to try to find a small group that's just like you. You won't benefit too much. Find a group that's not like you. You know, you might have visited a small group and think, you know what? I really can't relate to those people. Those people don't seem to go very deep, or those people don't seem to, they seem to be all introverts. They seem to be all extroverts. They seem to be all this or all that or all whatever. Think, you know what? You need all of that. The church is special. And sometimes special in the way that's short school bus special, but the church is special. The church is integral to life. Do you treat the church as a family? Do you help other members of the body? How do you relate to people who aren't like you? Well, the church is not only special because... Christ died for it because it's his body, because it's where he carries out his work, he builds it. It's also special because it's where we make progress. The church is special because that church is where we make progress as Christians. It's where we grow the most. You know, there is a phrase in theology called progressive sanctification that means progressively growing progressively being more and more like Jesus if the point of the Christian walk is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ the place where that happens the most is in the context of the local church the church is special because it's where we make progress Ephesians 2:20 we already read that it says in whom the whole structure being joined together grows what it grows into a temple We're not a perfected structure. We grow. We are all growing into the temple of the Lord in the Lord. We're growing. It's where where we grow. And then look in verse 22. It says, in him you are being built. The church is where we make progress. That's why it's special. We grow into a holy temple. We don't immediately become that. It's, 
It's through being joined together that we grow. We're built together. We, it's a progressive nature. Ephesians 4, I'm not going to read you the whole passage, but he talks about in Ephesians 4, 11, all these various gifts you can see in, in the church. And look at verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, for making the body grow, for building it up, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. So we're not yet there, but the church is the place where God builds us up, where he grows us, where he matures us. In verse 14, it says, that we may no longer be children, Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness. What is the purpose of church? That we may no longer be children. Why? So we can grow, grow up. And then he says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body what? Say it aloud. Grow! So that it builds itself up in love. The church is where we make progress. The church is where we grow the most. That's why it's so special. I don't have time to continue to go into that, but the church is where we grow the most. You know, John 13, 35 says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, now I, I am so grateful. Aaron and I were talking about the church and all of the different ways we were encouraged about what God has done in the past year in the church. And, you know, at first when somebody says, hey, think about 10 ways that you're grateful for the church, what God's done in and through the church, you're like, hmm, I don't know. Well, we got to talking and, and we, we, we thought of, I don't know, probably more than 50 at least. Not, not to count all the individual people that we're grateful for in the church. But one of the things that stuck out the most is in and through all the ups and downs we've had as a church this past year, in and through all the difficulties and people leaving and coming and all the different problems or whatever issues we might have had in the church, one of the things that's really just been remarkable is that one of the demonstrations of the fact that you are disciples of Jesus is that you love one another. That's, that's how we grow and how people know that we're disciples if we have love for one another. But you know, love is often not only displayed in the church, but it's often challenged. You know, you don't have to learn how to love somebody if you already love perfectly. But you've got to learn how to love somebody if somebody's really difficult. In, in Corinthians, Paul's talking to them. He says, hey, you think you're mature? If you really think you're mature, let me tell you, maturity is not about all these spiritual gifts. Maturity is actually about love. And let me tell you what love is. Love is patient. If you didn't have to be patient with somebody else in the church, you would never grow to know what love looks like. Because we need to be patient. So you need to stick it out when somebody, you're impatient with somebody in the church. Why? Because you need to grow in love. He says, love is patient, love is kind. Why? Because people might not always be kind. Love is patient, love is kind. It's, it's long-suffering. Why is love long-suffering? Because you have to suffer long. There's no way you're going to grow in love unless you suffer long with other people who require suffering long with. Does that make sense? In the church, you're going to grow in love. You're going to grow to look like his disciples as you are long-suffering with other people here. As you're long-suffering, as you're patient, as you're kind, as as you have to bear with one another in love. And by that, as we grow, we're going to grow in the church as we're challenged to love one another. And it will be a challenge, by the way. It is a challenge. But it's a glorious challenge that, that God makes us into his image and he enables us to grow in love. And then he enables us to actually display that we belong to him, that we're his disciples, that we're following Jesus because we're trying to love each other like he's loved us, as imperfectly as we do that. Let me ask you, do you believe that the church is the best place for you to grow? Do you believe that?
Or do you approach it as a smorgasbord meant to satisfy your desires, your preferences, your longings? Do you seek to learn? Do you seek to actively place yourself under the teaching of God's word? Are you striving to help others grow in God's grace? Are you devoted to your local church because you believe God will make you more like him through difficulties, through trials, through arguments, through disagreements when people don't even smell good? And that's okay, by the way. We're too hung up on that sometimes. Are you devoted to the church because you believe God will make you more like him through it? If love for God is seen in love for one another, let me ask you, how are you seeking to love others in the church specifically who might not be lovely? Where do you need to grow in being long-suffering or kind or patient? When your love for others is challenged, how do you respond? Do you see that the church is actually meant for your good because God is after something in each and every one of us? He wants to make us into his image and to get rid of all the draws. And he does that primarily in this messy relationships of the church. The fourth reason the church is special is because Jesus will return for his bride. I had this worded. I was trying to use a bunch of P words and it was badly worded. So church needs to prepare for his return. The church is special because Jesus is returning for his bride. He's not just returning for a bunch of individuals. He's returning for his bride. Revelation 19.6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation 21, 9, it says, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in his spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The church is special because Jesus is returning for his bride. And one day he's going to take us back. One day we're going to be spotless. Remember in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 when it says that Jesus is all about making the church sanctified, having cleansed of the washing water of the word, so that he might present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. That's the goal that we are all living towards as the bride. And Jesus is returning for his bride, and as a bride, we're going to be presented to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. And isn't that a wonderful picture? He does it in and through the church. We're living for his return. We're to make ourselves ready as well. In Matthew, I think I have a passage for you in Matthew. Matthew 24, he says, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking about the day when he is coming back when he's going to do what we just read about in Revelation and reveal his bride. He says, therefore, stay awake. You don't know what day your Lord is coming Stay awake, church. 
But know this, that the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. The church is special because Jesus is coming back for his bride. And the church needs to prepare for his return. The church is priceless. It's God's people. It's where we make progress. It's, it's what Christ is coming back for. But how are we living now? How do we view the church now? What does our participation in the church look like? What would God have you and I change? Are you living with the hope that God is using this imperfect instrument to one day make you actually spotless? Isn't that wonderful promise? Do you know he already sees you? as He's already given you his spotless robes and he finds you beautiful in all your glorious mess. Did you know he looks at each and every other church member here that way too? Do you? Do you see them in all their glorious mess as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, growing together to be a spotless bride? Are you living to make yourself ready for his return? Are you hoping in his return? Is that, are, is that what you were living for? Is that the day you were longing for? Because if so, it's going to be seen in how you're living for his bride for the church. I'm going to close by reading to you an ode to the church by a guy named David Mathis. He's a, one of the executive editors at Desiring God. He says, There she stands in splendor, secure on the arm of her father, adorned in brilliant white for her husband. The music sounds and beckons their short passage down the aisle. Once she had been disgraced and dirty, unholy and seemingly unlovable. Now she walks without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now she moves in spectacular holiness, beautiful without blemish. She played the hellion and the whore. She had followed the course of the world as a daughter of disobedience. She was dead in her trespasses and sin. But her father, ever rich in mercy, loved her with an extraordinary love. He brought her new life by his powerful world, the gospel of, his, of her salvation, in which he made the deepest revelation of his heart and demonstrated the, the greatness of his affection. She was born anew, not to temporal life, but eternal through his living and abiding word. She breathes as a creation of his breath. And so she's been sustained by his word and molded and shaped by his message. Her existence in the world has been for his voice's advance and defense. Now every step down the aisle is steady and sure, but it has not always been so. She has stumbled many times before. There were terrible lapses. Her recovery had its ups and downs. The long engagement was an adventure to say the least. Detractors came forward. Myriads mocked her, countless accused her. Many didn't believe in her or underestimated her or thought she'd never last. But in every imperfection and indiscretion and every slip and mistake and outright sin and every trying disgrace and shame, she is endured as her father's own household. She is a pillar and buttress of his truth. In her weakness, he strengthened her to hold up his message in the sight of the nations and proclaim it for all to hear. In her frailness, he empowered her to lean against the walls, keep them pressed in and protect his message against distortion and compromise and collapse. She has withstood the test of time, even when winds and waves have taken their toll. She's endured as a servant of the word, not its master. By this word, she's come through dangers, toils and snares. And now on this great day, she's presented an unparalleled majesty. Her groom stitched the gown himself. He loved her and gave himself up for her and made her holy washing her and cleansing her with his word. Other grooms would have given up a long time ago, 
But his patience was astounding. His relentless investment of energy, remarkable. His wide mercy has made him worthy of worship. Now finishes a hymn greater than any ever heard. Now she meets him at the center, prepared, adorned, shining with the very glory of God. Now the Father gives his own Son to her as head over all things. No eye is dry for joy. Every tear of sadness is wiped away. Death is no more. Now there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away. Behold, says the groom, I am making all things new. Amen. Let's pray and have the band go ahead and come up and we'll sing.